0: All right. If you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if they're not open already. And we're going to be in the gospel according to Luke. We're still in chapter 22, and I'm going to be spending the majority of our time in our main text, which is verses 47 through 62. Um, If you're taking notes, we'll also be spending a little bit of time in John chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 26. Um, So put a note there or finger there. Um, because we'll be visiting there quite a few times. But um, as we witnessed in other pivotal moments within the ministry of Jesus, we have another account um, that's in all four Gospels, uh, not just the synoptic Gospels, which always causes us to look just a little bit closer, and it helps us to, I think, walk away with a little more clarity. Um, But at the same time, um, I don't want us to get lost in the details, and I'm going to try my best not to do that today. So I'm actually going to give you guys the title of my sermon today, uh, which is also the big idea or the main point in the text that I'm trying to pull out for you guys. And uh, I pray that it's going to be something that's evident um, for you as we look at the text, because while we see something in a text that seems pretty hopeless in it, we also find a piece that surpasses all understanding. While we might be distracted by all the players in our passage, Jesus is still the main character. Whether it's the betrayal of Judas, the high priest, the officers, even Peter denying Jesus, the crowd who came to arrest him, those who would accuse him and even attempt to make false accusations. Beyond any illustration that I can make or application principles that I can give you guys to encourage you, I want you to walk away today seeing Jesus for who he is and for you to know with certainty that Jesus will be who he is regardless of who we are in our worst moments and even in our darkest hour. And so the title of my sermon today is Our Unwavering and Compassionate Savior. So let's look at verses 47 through 62. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man came, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, How he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, thank you for your scripture that you have spoken and given to eyewitnesses. Your scripture that you have given to those who walked with them, physicians and people from different places and different stripes. But, Lord, you authored your word and you've written it for your people. And, God, we are your people. So, Lord, I pray that you will help me preach it with boldness, with confidence, with humility. I pray that you will be glorified and that your people will be edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you look again at your Bible for a moment, you'll notice this passage is broken down into two major sections, referred to as the betrayal of Jesus, the rest of Jesus, in verses 47 through 53. And then you have the denial of Peter or Peter denies Jesus from verses 54 through 62. However, the main heading that I would like to give you guys today isn't so much focused on what happened to Jesus in this moment. Rather, I would like for us to focus on the restraint, the compassion and the faithfulness of our Savior. And so the two headings that I would like to give you, which is also the two major points that I would like to give you today is one, the unwavering faithfulness. Of Jesus, and that's in verses 47 through 53. And the second point is the compassionate faithfulness of Jesus in verses 54 through 62. So that's the unwavering faithfulness of Jesus and the compassionate faithfulness of Jesus. And as we consider these things, it's my prayer that you will rejoice. You will walk away encouraged today as you're reminded of the unwavering determination and the compassionate nature of our Savior and King, Jesus. And so point number one, the unwavering faithfulness of Jesus. Uh, Let's look again at verse 47, where we find the setting of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas. One of the twelve was leading them. So as Jesus and his disciples are there on the Mount of Olives. Right. Jesus is encouraging his disciples. He's calling them to be prayerful and for them to be alert. A crowd appeared. Without a doubt, Jesus knew what was about to take place. Jesus would warn his disciples time and time again about this very hour. He understood the uh, nature of humans, how we're weak without prayer. He understood how we are fearful and and weak without prayer. He understood the needs of his disciples, that they needed to be prayerful and guarded from temptation. And instead, instead, they slept. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, the ESV doesn't really capture the gravity of this moment here in the text. Luke intended to grab our attention here in the same way the disciples were awakened from their slumber. The text says, behold, a crowd came. This term is understood to introduce something new or unusual, to arouse the attention of the listener. Behold, look, see. The appearing of this crowd was abrupt. One moment, Jesus is warning his yawning disciples that they should pray that they don't enter into temptation. And in the next minute, they're interrupted by this crowd. I think the CSB and the Net Bible and some others do a really good job at pulling this out of the text here. When they actually write, as Jesus is speaking, suddenly a mob came. When you hear the word suddenly, you can't help but to look and see or as Luke actually penned it to behold However, the mob that suddenly came didn't suddenly come in a sense that it happened by chance. It didn't happen by some coincidence. It's not like they happened to stumble across Jesus and his disciples on a random mountain. The text says that Judas was leading them. John chapter chapter 18 says that this mob was actually selected and handpicked by Judas. Judas is one of the 12 that Jesus handpicked. He was one of the 12 that Jesus would go into detail with about the parables. Judas was one of the 12 that saw Jesus up close. He saw him open blind eyes, make the lame to walk. He saw him heal people. He saw him feed 5,000. He even assisted Jesus in ministry. Yet Judas was not regenerate. As Randy helped me out last week, he mentioned uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 13. After the devil fails while trying to tempt Jesus, He left until an opportune time, and that time has come as Judas Iscariot became a traitor and was willing to hand Jesus over to his enemies. An opportune time during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Of course Jesus would be there, right? Along with his disciples and everyone that he had beef with. Verses 3-6 through says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And as stated at the end of, end of verse 47 and into verse 48, it says he drew near to kiss Jesus. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? This is the moment that I think you'll find a lot of preachers really making this passage about you and your haters. How be those the closest to you who don't want to see you win. This idea that you must keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. You can see that maybe on the surface. You can even make it sound biblical. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. profuse are the kisses of an enemy. However, it's dangerous if we make this a motivational message about your haters. Or an allegory about the modern Christian life. Because if your, hater, if your hater is Judas, then who does that make you? It makes you Jesus, and certainly you're not him. This greeting of a kiss really captures the deceitful nature of the betrayal. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26 says, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Don't trip, my brothers. It says here, the Greek text, Adel, uh, Adelphos actually refers to both men and women. <laughs> its semantic range would also include relatives, those of the same nation, someone of the same rank or dignity, but in this case, a member of the Christian community. Why am I saying all of this? Because this was no holy kiss. This was no kiss of love as stated in 1 Peter 5:14. Judas betrays Jesus behind his back, and then he has the nerve to show up with his enemies and still greets him, in a way that would signal brotherhood and kinship. But if the kiss of Judas that that he greeted Jesus with was not one of love, then what was its purpose? Matthew chapter 26, verses 48 through 50. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. It's bad enough that Judas is betraying his friend and his teacher. But the reality is he's not simply betraying another human being. He is betraying the son of man. There's only one verse in the entire New Testament that the term son of man is applied to someone outside of Jesus. And that verse is Acts chapter seven, verse fifty six. But that verse aside, this term son of man is exclusively used by Jesus and only in the Gospels. And it refers to one, his ministry. And in two, passages foretelling his suffering, death and resurrection. And three, passages that speak about his appearing to execute judgment. In other words, son of man is to be understood here as a messianic title, one of divine nature. Judas doesn't simply betray man. He has literally betrayed God. The God man who came to die for sinners and will return as judge. There's no doubt that this was the ultimate betrayal. Just as Satan will betray God in heaven, he would enter into Judas and he would betray God on earth. But what was his motive? Some say that he was upset like some of the other Jews because Jesus wasn't the kind of savior that they were expecting. And so he betrayed him. Others believe Judas was handing Jesus over, desiring to bring the kingdom forth even sooner. He just couldn't wait. But the text says he was a traitor. And in the end, he hung himself. So I don't think we can rock with that one. And there are those who also believe that he was simply greedy for money. In today's money, if I might be wrong, but with my calculations, I I determined in today's money, it was about $18,000. I know people who will sell you out for less. But while we're not given the details behind the betrayal of Judas, Judas, fueled by his own motives, whatever they were, and possessed by Satan, will fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah concerning the Messiah who will be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Verses 49 through 50 says, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. The disciples were ready to defend Jesus. We can see the buildup to this moment in verses 50, uh, 35 through 38, which Abner preached about just two weeks ago. They said, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus told them, that is enough. <laughs> However, at least one of them didn't even consider the fact that Jesus told them that the scripture must be fulfilled concerning the Messiah. Only the gospel of John reveals to us which disciple did this. But most of us probably would have guessed it, even if it wasn't written in there. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Peter didn't wait for an answer. Peter was the goon. Right. As they drew near to arrest Jesus, Peter, who was known to be zealous, outspoken about his loyalty to Jesus, he would prove it. He was willing to kill for Jesus. John, chapter 18, verse 10 says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter seemed to be ready to ride and die, ride or die for Jesus. Yet Jesus would rebuke Peter instead. Verse 51, Jesus says no more of this. He actually says more than this. Um, If you look with me at Matthew chapter 26, verses uh, 52 through 54, Jesus actually says a little more than what we see in, in Luke chapter 22. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? If you're counting, this is the second time that Peter unknowingly opposed the will of God. Jesus warned them what must take place. And just like the time when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. Peter once again failed to set his mind on the things of God perhaps if he was praying half as much as he was asleep he would not have acted out of ignorance after all a major part of prayer is surrendering to God's will at the expense of our own will and our impulses Jesus could have called down more than 72,000 angels Jesus could have appealed to his father for deliverance The means and the power of Jesus is seen as as they come to him, this crowd comes to him and he says, I am he. And they all draw back and fall to the ground. Surely he could have saved himself from this moment and slipped away once again from his enemies. Yet he stood firm. He was ready to drink the cup that the father gave him. It's one thing to show restraint. It's another thing to show restraint under pressure and while being mistreated. And I'm unable to find the words that can adequately speak to the unwavering restraint of the son of man who holds all power over creation, who upholds the universe by the power of his word. He commands the sun to rise and to set the one who commands the flowers to grow and wither away all the way down to the single cell organisms that function according to his will. The unseen creatures dwelling in the depths of the sea that exist simply for his glory and his good pleasure. Still, he subjected himself to scorn and ridicule and betrayal, abuse, even death on the Roman cross. And he did it for me. <laughs> Living in Christ's church. He did this for you. How was Jesus able to do this? While Jesus is truly God, he's also a man with a real human nature. Right. Jesus was able to stand firm in the midst of injustice by constantly communing with the father in prayer and humility. Notice the different response of Jesus here in verse 51, instead of joining in the fight and destroying his enemies as easily as he could, instead he showed grace even to those who hated him. Just as we learned in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, where Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And so instead of Jesus fighting and standing up along with Peter, he touched the servants his heir, and, and he heals him. Um, this moment during the rest of Jesus is actually mentioned in Luke's account, and it's also the only miracle recorded in the Bible where Jesus heals a flesh wound. I thought that was pretty uh, interesting. And I read a helpful observation about this verse that I think is worth uh, quoting here also. Quote, this miracle is also unique in that Christ healed an enemy, unasked and without any evidence of faith in the recipient, It is also remarkable that such a dramatic miracle had no effect whatsoever on the hearts of those men. Neither had the explosive power of Jesus's words, which knocked them to the ground. In John chapter 18, verse six, they carried on with the arrest as if nothing spectacular had just happened. (laughs) What if you saw someone heal someone by just touching their air? It doesn't even say he picked up the piece of his air that fell off. They just went on about with their arrest like nothing spectacular just happened. Verses 52 and 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Judas had brought along with him the Pharisees, the chief priests, the officers of the temple, and even managed to rally together a band of soldiers. This Roman cohort could have been a force of up to 600 men and would have been ordered by Pilate. They knew that there could potentially be an uprising. They knew that there would be a huge crowd around Jesus since it was during the the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. They weren't going to let Jesus get away this time, and so they treated him as if he was a robber, bringing with them clubs and swords, and they came at night. This would look much different than the triumphal entry that just took place. This time, the Messiah would come down the mountain in the custody of his enemies. It's not looking so triumphant anymore. And it's not like this was their first opportunity to arrest Jesus. It's not like Jesus was in hiding. He says, day after day, I was with you in the temple. And we notice because of how often he was questioned by the religious leaders. They were trying to trip him up often, trying to make him look like a hypocrite or accuse him of blasphemy. And Jesus would also rebuke them out in the open and he would make examples out of them. It's not like Jesus did ministry in the dark. It's not like he did ministry on the mountains or exclusively in remote places. You can always find Jesus where the people are. And if there were a crowd, they were probably following Jesus because of something crazy that he just did. So why did they come at night if he was always in the temple? Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 22 says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. He was in the temple often, and they never once laid hands on him. They were cowards. That's why they came for him at night. And so Jesus says at the end of verse 53, But this is your hour, and the power of darkness. Jesus knew that this was his appointed time, just like the scripture said that it must be fulfilled. The redemptive plan of God centered around Jesus, the Messiah, could only take place through humility and surrender. You see, this was much bigger than the Jews and their beef that they had with Jesus. This was much bigger. Make no mistake, this is bigger than the Roman government and some self-proclaimed Messiah from Nazareth. At least that's how many people would uh, read this text. As I stated earlier, it's easy to get caught up in what's happening on this mountain and get lost in the crowd of people. But in all actuality, this is the beginning of the end of the battle between the power of light and the power of darkness. This is why Jesus doesn't lose it and destroy them. This is why Jesus doesn't join in the fight with Peter. So often we get caught up in the natural and we focus on the wrong things and we make enemies out of people based off of their parents or their politics, where they grew up. The things that they even do that's sinful and maybe just unwise. All of these things are the byproduct of something much deeper. These are just manifestations of the flesh, the outflowing of the heart. This is why when we share the gospel, we're targeting the heart of stone and we understand the supernatural stronghold that the power of God must break through in order for the light of Christ to shine in the darkness and awaken the sinner from death to life. This is what happened with us. The power of darkness. We are warned about this darkness in Ephesians, right? We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, and, and blood, but so often we do this. We're actually wrestling against the rulers and authorities in high places, right? The, the, uh, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, Tozer has a really dope quote about the power of darkness. He says, there are two degrees of darkness according to our Lord. First is the degree of darkness that is absolute, where there has never been any light. That is the darkness of the heathen. But the second is another degree of darkness and more intense, the darkness that follows rejected light, quote. And we'll see the extent of this darkness soon when we get to Calvary. But it will remain dark and faith in Jesus will be to no avail if Jesus was unable to stand firm in the midst of injustice. Instead, he consistently communed with the Father in prayer, and he showed humility. This is a testament to the unwavering faithfulness of Jesus. And because of this, Jesus can commission Paul. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, there is hope for those who are in the dark. He sent them out so they can open their eyes. They can open the eyes of the people so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in the faith of Christ. So point number two, the compassionate faithfulness of Jesus. Let's look at verse 54. As they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Um, you know what's interesting when someone gets called in sin, doesn't it always like, catch us off guard? Like our friends, our family members, people in ministry that we look up to. It always catches us off guard as if we never imagined that it can happen. But the reality is, it's like the illustration of the iceberg. You see this huge chunk of ice in the middle of the water, but the reality is 90% of that iceberg is beneath the surface. For someone to fall into great sin before they lead, leading up to the place of the great sin is small, little compromises that you might not see, you might not take notice of. If I can get my own illustration, someone might go from running a race with endurance, controlling their breath, focusing on the prize ahead, to being distracted about what's happening around them. They begin to doubt and to lose their stride. Their breathing pattern begins to sound just a little bit different and they can no longer keep up. And the next thing you know, they're following behind at a distance. Peter, the bold disciple, the disciple who was ready to kill for Jesus and die for Jesus or at least go to jail for Jesus, He stood next to Jesus when he was being betrayed by Judas. Peter was also with Jesus as he was arrested, but he began to distance himself from Jesus. Many believe Mark ran off so that he can escape capture. Um, The Gospel of John mentions there was another another disciple that followed. Many people think it is John. um, And so maybe this is worth a note here. If it is John, John was also the only one to be found at the cross of Jesus when he died. And he was with Jesus in the courtyard as he stood before Caiaphas, as Peter stood outside the door. And there's no other disciples mentioned here in the passage. But our gospel focuses on Peter. And Luke finds it necessary to highlight the fact that he was following behind at a distance, which is very different than his posture just moments ago. And we'll see that distance continue to grow as he denies even knowing who Jesus is. This was the beginning of his trial before the Sanhedrin, um, the trial that Jesus, uh, they they took Jesus to. Um, It takes place in three phases, twice in our account. And then you'll see it again when we get to verses 66 through 71. But in John chapter 18, if you want to turn there, we see the first phase as Jesus stands before Annas, who would interrogate him sort of off the books because Annas actually was removed from office as high priest. But he still had the respect of the people. And so they still looked to him with respect. And although this isn't a part of our text, I want to read what happened around the events that Luke highlights in his gospel. Verse 19 through 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and teachings and his teaching. Jesus answered him. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in a synagogue and in a temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing uh, by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The second phase is found here as Jesus stands before Caiaphas in the courtyard. Caiaphas is actually the father-in-law of Annas. This trial carried into the morning. They were trying to break Jesus down. Um, Verse 55 says in our text says, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Among who? Those who arrested Jesus. Peter sat among them. Not only did Peter attempt to get in the way of God's will as he cut off the servant's ear, not only did Peter run and hide as he followed at a, at a distance, he then joins the very crowd that arrest Jesus and are looking to find a way to put Jesus to death. He got comfortable with the enemy as, as he warmed himself by the fire, curious to see what the outcome would be. In phase two of the trial, Jesus stands before the, of, of Jesus standing before the Jews, We see what unfolded in Matthew 26, verses 59 through 68, a little lengthier. But again, I think it's worth uh, reading because this is what happens right before Peter or while uh, Peter is denying Jesus. Matthew 26, 59 through 68. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. For a second, can we just pause and Consider what our Savior actually had to endure for us before even getting to the cross. He was rejected by his own people according to the flesh. He was defamed by the religious leaders in the crowd. He was unjustly arrested and taken away as if he was a criminal. He was abused. He was spit upon. He was mocked. People lied about him. This is just in our text alone. The Son of Man, who is one with the Father and Spirit, subjected himself to persecution in order so that he can can secure salvation for all who would believe in his name. This is our unwavering and compassionate Savior. Let's look to our text again in uh, uh, verses 56 through 60, where Luke writes about the denial of Peter. Starting at verse 56, then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light, And looking closely at him said, this man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Here we have another incident that will be so easy to omit from the biblical record. Instead, while this is an unfortunate event, what we have is an account that should encourage us in a number of ways. It should serve as a warning for us about the slippery nature of drifting away and encourage us to stand firm. The inclusion of Peter's denial of Jesus is a mark of authenticity when we look at the Bible. These men that We hold in such high regard and we should. They're just men. They're not superheroes. They were far from perfect. This is just one of many examples. Not long ago, we just read about Peter confessing Jesus as Lord, being the foundation that Christ would build his church on. (laughs) So no one would actually expect Peter to deny Jesus. Definitely not three times. He had multiple examples or multiple opportunities that um, he had to repent. Multiple opportunities to stand up for Jesus when it mattered the most, yet he would deny him instead. The first denial is found here in verse 56. As Peter is warming himself by the fire, there's a servant girl, um, the servant girl of the high priest. She noticed him. And this term here for a servant girl or a slave could refer to either a young woman um, or a little girl. Um, we really don't know anything about her other than that. But she noticed him and she knew that Peter was with Jesus. Yet he denied it, saying, women, I do not know him. Mark's gospel goes even further to say Peter not only denies knowing Jesus, but he doubles down. He says, I neither know. He said, I neither know nor understand what you mean. (laughs) This was no mere denial of knowledge. It was a denial of fellowship. I do not know him was an idiomatic formula or expression known for being used in the synagogues, meaning I have nothing to do with him. It's pretty wild. The second denial happens in verse 58. After he left the gateway, Peter goes to the porch where he saw a maid or where a maid saw him. She said, you, too, are one of them. You were with Jesus of Nazareth. She was so certain because she was actually in the garden when they took Jesus. This maid is actually a relative of Malchus. If you remember, that was the guy who got his ear cut off by Peter. And even though she may have been there to see Jesus heal him, instead she insisted and she pressed Peter even further. And this time Peter makes an oath as he denies it. He makes a vow. This term here expresses the idea of swearing by an idol or something significant. He says, I do not know the man. I am not one of them. The third denial starts in verse 59 when Peter is on the porch and there's bystanders nearby and they begin to say, surely you are one of them. The way you talk gives you away. <laughs> he even tried to blend in with the, tr- the crowd, but he couldn't hide. And as he denied Jesus, his very speech gave him away because he sounded like a Galilean. <laughs> I want to ask, when you talk, does people equate your speech to someone who walks with Christ? Or do you sound just like everyone in the world? The same talking points. It's easy to get caught up in those talking points. I'm repenting from using some of those talking points. So Peter got angry at this moment. He began to curse. He began to swear, sounding just like those in the crowd. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. And before he can even finish, the text says immediately while he's still speaking, the rooster crowed. If you're wondering how Peter could get to such a place, notice the progression and the stumble that led to his fall. First, there was a change in proximity as he distanced himself from Jesus. How often do we see this in the body, someone distancing themselves from Jesus? We saw this with a brother who served in ministry for more than 30 years. After neglecting the local church, neglecting reading and meditating on the word of God, he fell away. And now he stands as an enemy of our Lord and his people. If you're here today and this is you, you need to know that it's not a safe place to be distancing yourself from the Lord or the body. We have to remain close to the shepherd and his flock because the wolves are waiting. So first he distanced himself, which led to a change in fellowship as he became a part of the crowd. When you begin to distance yourself and fall back, you are no longer following near to Jesus or his people. You cannot hear his voice and you will begin to listen to the voice of others. He got comfortable. He sat there warming himself as Jesus is being mocked, falsely accused as Jesus is being beaten. And so finally, this change in proximity and this change in fellowship led led to a change in identity. Peter no longer identified as a disciple of Jesus. He became one with the crowd who also denied Jesus. If you follow the narrative, it's it's pretty sad. It's like watching a car about to crash. You can just see it coming. R.C. Ryle says, quote, the snare was around his neck. He could not escape. He plunged deeper into error than ever. He denied his blessed master three times. The mischief, be it remembered, had been done before. The denial was only the disease coming to the head, quote. This is what happens when we don't pray. When we sleep on the power of darkness, our light is easily hidden or even put out. And we become comfortable sitting, walking, and living in the dark. May this never be said of any of us. Finally, let's look at verses 61 through 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus turned to look at Peter. Only the Gospel of Luke mentions this here. The NIV makes it a point to say that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. While Peter turned away from Jesus, Jesus turned towards Peter. I don't know what it's like to be like Peter in this moment. I've never been up against maybe what Peter was up against in this moment, being among a crowd of people who wants to kill the person that you're following, the person that you've given your life to. So I would never judge Peter in this moment, but I do know what it's like for the Lord to look at me in my sin, and I'm grateful that he did. How many times have you denied the Lord in thought? How many times have you denied the Lord in words or even in your actions? Oftentimes our first reaction is to run, which is another form of denial, because it's only in the Lord where we find rest, forgiveness and grace. It is only in the Lord Jesus that we find help in our time of need. It is only in the Lord Jesus that we have a mediator between God and man. And not only will he never leave us or forsake us, our mediator, Jesus, will never hide his face from us. Verse 61 says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. If someone were to disown you, they didn't want to be associated with you. Right. Not just anyone, but someone that you poured your life into, someone that you discipled, someone that maybe you considered a brother or a sister. They cursed you. They denied even knowing you, not even behind your back, but in your very presence. You might have to catch these hands. (laughs) Right. Isn't that your reaction? That's our reaction. How would you respond? Think about it. That's just us. But this is the Lord we're talking about. We're talking about God in the flesh. Jesus doesn't turn away from Peter or condemn him. He didn't reject Peter or destroy him. Instead, he looks at him. Notice the restraint again of our Lord as we see his love and compassion. Is this not a real life example of what the gospel looks like? When you have this expression here of Jesus turning to look at Peter, Ellis notes, quote, no phrase in the gospel is charged with more emotion than this. Imagine that. As the Lord looked at Peter, he doesn't give him the side eye. He wasn't saying, I told you so. He doesn't give him that look that maybe you give your kids when they're acting up in public. To the contrary, the Lord looks at Peter with a level of disappointment, but also with a great level of compassion. And we know this because of how Peter responds. It reminded him of what the Lord told him. And he was awakened to repentance. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how it how he had said to him before the rooster crows today. You will deny me three times. The ESV translates verse 61 here in a way that I think is much smoother for the English reading uh, person or the speaking person. A more wooden or word for word translation here says Peter remembered the word of the Lord. You know, that's an expression that's often used in the Old Testament It's used 15 times in the New Testament. But it was a prophetic utterance carrying with it the idea of divine origin, meaning the word didn't come from man, but the word came from God. What I'm saying is Luke uses this moment to highlight the divine nature of the words that Jesus spoke to Peter when he had told him what would take place. And just as the Lord says it it would happen after Peter denied him three times, the rooster crowed. And in verse 62, we see he went out and he wept bitterly. I love the way one commentary dealt with this passage, and uh, I want to read it because paraphrasing it is not going to do it justice. And you'll see what I mean. One commentary said, quote, a rooster's crow, not a human voice, made Peter realize what he had done. Reinforcement came in one glance from Jesus. Jesus's words stabbed their way into Peter's memory. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. The brashly, self-confident man disappeared. Now he distanced himself from the crowd. Outside by himself, he wept bitter tears. Grief overwhelmed him. Followed Jesus to prison and to death? He could not even follow him to a mockery of a trial. The grief was as deep as Judas's later proved to be, but the response and subsequent actions would be quite different. Guilt led Judas to suicide. It led Peter to Pentecost, end quote. His response was real. The Gospel of Mark says Peter broke down. He was contrite in spirit. He wept bitterly. And surprisingly, this word here that we translate as, bit, as bitterly is only used two times in the New Testament. In both cases, it's used to describe the nature of Peter's repentance. He didn't just feel bad. He didn't just have a little bit of remorse. But as Jesus looked at Peter, his heart turned back to the Lord. There's a difference between a kiss of betrayal and tears of repentance. And you might be here today weighed down by your sin. You might be filling the grief along with grieving the Holy Spirit. Just as the Lord teaches us to pray that we don't fall into temptation when we do fall, we must pray. And considering what we learned today, we can know and we can know that we have a loving Savior that sympathizes with our weaknesses. A loving Savior that is compassionate and he's merciful and he's ready to restore us. Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 62 is an account in which we see the determination and the unwavering and compassionate nature of our Savior. While Jesus had many reasons to turn away from us, leaving us in our sin, destroying us, Jesus continued his way to the cross and even enduring the betrayal and the denial of his friends, stuff that we do on a level every single day. Peter serves as a great example for any of us who would say, I would never deny Jesus. Peter was willing to die for Jesus and even willing uh, and, and he fought for Jesus. He was ready to kill for Jesus. But yet he denied even knowing who Jesus was. How did Jesus respond the way he did? Because he was dedicated to being obedient to the father's will, faithful to instituting the new covenant through the gospel. And we have an opportunity once again as we prepare for communion to examine ourselves and to repent before the Lord. Don't sleep. And as we do remember this passage and what it tells us about our Lord, this is encouraging. As sad as it is, this should be encouraging to us because we know through this chapter, through these verses that Jesus will be who he is, mediator and friend, a wonderful and a merciful savior, regardless of who we are in our worst moments and in our darkest hour. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the real lives of real people. Thank you for not sugarcoating it and only showing the good in people and making this walk seem impossible. Um, Lord, this walk is impossible without you. But Lord, thank you for showing us examples of when we fall, you're there to restore us, not there to condemn us. Um, in you, we know we have life and a life more abundant. So Lord, help us to walk. Help us to stay close to you and to your people. First, in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Stand please.